Alright, students, welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019 Lecture 21, but Lecture 4 on the Purgatorio. Day 2, the first cornice of pride and the second cornice of envy. So, I want to revisit as we start the distinction between sin and vice, just so that we can recall um, an important division, and an important division between the Purgatorio and the Inferno, before we do some review on the last four uh, cantos, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. So remember... Purgatory, unlike the Inferno, consists of seven ledges, terraces, or cornices. Recall that the Inferno had nine circles. The nine circles of the Inferno, we went down left-handed in a downward funnel fashion, going down towards the center of the earth in the northern hemisphere. Now we are moving up in a right-handed fashion along ledges, uh, where we will see several pieces of art and sculptures, sculptures in particular today on the side of the wall, while making a funnel upwards in the southern hemisphere. We're literally moving the opposite direction from the direction we were moving in the inferno, and yet, in, in some way, going in the same direction. That said, each terrace on the Purgatorio is devoted to purging one of the seven capital vices, not sins. Remember, sometimes they're described as the seven deadly sins, but we know that they're the seven deadly vices because of the difference in definition between vice and sin. And so, these vices are... Pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. We will be seeing pride in, um, in its entirety today. We will be seeing um, uh, examples of humility in Canto 10. We will be seeing actual proud penitence in Canto 11. And we will be seeing examples of pride itself, the vice itself, in Canto 12. And so, vices, what are they? They are inclinations that lead to sins. That means they are mental attitudes. So, if you are slothful... That le and that means lazy, essentially, or do not love with enough zeal will be Dante's actual definition, then that means that your actions based on that mental inclination will be sinful. And so sins are specific acts, whereas vices are inclinations of the mind, or for Dante, of the soul, and specifically of the rational intellect, which is a part of the soul for him. So recall that it is not vices that are punished in hell, in the inferno, but rather sins, specific acts like murder. Whereas in purgatory, it is a realm where those who are saved, those who have received salvation, purge themselves of their inclinations, that means of their vices, the vices that caused the sins for which they then had to repent. So I want you to understand that distinction, and I think that will help you to understand, again, another fundamental difference between the inferno and the purgatorio. Let's recall. So, Last time, we got through the final two parts of anti-purgatory. Anti-purgatory, as you recall, is split into two parts, the excommunicates represented by Manfred, as well as the late repentance. Remember, the late repentance were split into three. The apathetic, the local is one of those. The unabsolved due to violent death, Boncante was one of those. Uh, de Montefeltro, recall that he was the son of Guido de Montefeltro, just as Manfred was the son of Frederick II, illegitimate son. Frederick II, recall that we also met La Pia in Canto V, just like Francesca, and that she, like Francesca, was an adulteress who was killed by her husband, but that with some shame she passed over the grisly details, unlike Francesca. Again, a fundamental difference between them. We then met a lion-like man from Mantua, who was very happy to meet another Mantuan, and even happier to find out that Mantuan was Virgil, and that was Sordello, and we had an excoriation of Italy, lots of vices in Italy, apparently, and then we saw a drama between two celestial hawks, uh, angels, casting out a snake. We said that that was an allegory for what is supposed to be happening in purgatory. You've got to cast the sin out. 
got to cast the snake out, which is a symbol for sin by using uh, those two uh, celestial falcons, you might say, are intellect and will, or good intellect and will. You have to use your free choice and your mind to identify the problems within yourself and then fix them. That seems right. Then Dante fell asleep during the first night, had a dream about Ganymede and an eagle, was actually moved by St. Lucia up to the gate of purgatory. On the gate of purgatory was sitting an angel on three steps. The three steps were the three acts of penance. They were white, dark purple, and red. And then he uses two keys, one gold, one silver, to open the gate of purgatory. And then we walk in and we see pride. And this is a beautiful image. You can see the sculptures of humility on the side there. You can see the proud penitents with rocks on their back. I'll have something to say about that. The principle of contrapasso, or suffer the opposite, or of uh, vengeance, will be um, operant in the purgatorio, just as it was in the inferno. Each of these punishments will be significant to the vice that it is attempting to fix. All right, so something about these next three uh, cantos. And I got this from the scholar from Digital Dante, and she is correct in this, and I think this is good, is that we will see a, a codified structure during the coast during the course of the Purgatorio. It will take a very specific structure. So we will see examples of the virtue corresponding to the vice being purged. So amongst the proud in Canto 12, the first canto, we will see humility, examples of humility in art. Then in Canto 11, the second canto, we will see the souls of the penitents themselves, those who were, who were actually proud, uh, Odorisi, Umberto, and Provenzano Salvani. And then we will see examples of the vice that is to be corrected in the third so this should recall to us, and then we'll see an angel that lets us in to envy, and we'll see that uh, pattern repeated essentially uh, six times. We remember the straightforward quality of the first circles of hell, with canto assigned to each circle, one canto for limbo, inferno four, one for lust, inferno five, and one for gluttony, inferno six. In the same way, on the first Harris of Purgatory, the components of the template are arranged in the clearest possible way, one component to a canto. So, we'll see first and ten, the corresponding virtue to pride. Humility, it's not one of the theological or the cardinal virtues, so don't be confused by that nomenclature, by the way, but it is, in this case, considered a virtue. Uh, we will see the encounters with the souls in Purgatorio 11, and then examples of the vice being purged in Purgatorio 12. All right, our first quote when looking at these sculptures. They were of white marble, and adorned with carving so accurate that not only Polycletus or Polycletus could, but even nature, there would feel defeated. So, what are we looking at as we get into this terrace after we pass the gate? We're walking up to the right along a path which on one side is the abyss, like you fall down onto the ground, and on the other side you can see sculptures. And these sculptures look as if they are made from marble sides of the mountain and are so realis realistic, realistic uh, speaking, that it looks as if they are not made of sculpture. It looks as if they are moving and even speaking. The idea is that they are so real because they are made by God. And something just to have you think about the pride of Dante is, perhaps he is saying that these are the most realistic representations of art that have ever existed in speech in a book. And who is writing the book right now? Dante. And so the most, realis the real the most realistic, I'm sorry, Changing syllables in a word between adjective and noun can be tricky business. Um, <clears throat> the most realistic representation of art ever to have existed is that which could be made by 
God, and that which could be made by God as represented by a person in words in a book would therefore be Dante. Dante is then claiming that his art is the closest thing to the correct representation of that which exists that has ever existed. And so whether that's a humble claim or not is something I'll ask you at the end of things. In any case, this art that we will witness through his language on these walls, in the, uh, I suppose on the walls of our imagination, will be so realistic that they are even better than the greatest Greek classical sculpture. We are going yet again beyond that which we have seen. Alright, again, let's talk about the structure of these cantos and just put a fine tip on it. In Canto 10 we will see the three examples of the opposite virtue of pride. That opposite virtue is humility. The three examples will feature Mary, King David, and Trajan. Something to notice about those examples. We will see a Marian or example of Mary at the beginning of each virtuous piece of art in each seven of the each of the seven cornices. So the first example of the corresponding virtue that is to expiate the sin in art that we see every single time will be one of Mary. These are New Testament examples. Um, King David. The example of King David is an Old Testament example. And then the example of King Trajan that we'll see after that is a uh, pagan example. And so one thing that we noticed at the very beginning is that Dante is not prejudiced against different cultures and types of art. He includes obviously Old Testament, New Testament, as well as Greco-Roman pagan. He's very syncretic in his method, very synthetic. In any case, moving on to Canto 11, we will then see three proud sinners. Um, Umberto Aldobrandeschi, Odorisi da Gubbio, and Provazan Salvani. They each show three different sorts of pride. Pride in family, pride in politics, and pride in art. And then in the 12th Canto, we will see 13 examples of pride. Interestingly enough, these will not be carved into the side of the mountain. They will be beneath the feet of the proud, who, as you know, are uh, bent over by a rock on their back. And so in order to see the examples of humility, they must look up in the same way that they looked down on people. That means to be scornful of people or disdainful of people in their lives. Well, so will they look down on images of pride as well. So the, the first will become last indeed in that case, because that which... Uh, uh, held itself above others, like one of the examples will be Lucifer, another Niobe, who I actually got to talk about in Book 24 of the Iliad today for being so overweeningly proud. Um, well, even though they held themselves above others, now they are represented as below others, even be lower than the lowest. In any case, moving on, moving on. So what is this punishment exactly for pride? The punishment is that the proud must carry a rock on their back there are several symbolic elements to this. A, there are people who thought they were above others. Now they are actually literally crushed below. There are people who looked down on others and held themselves up tall, very much like Farinata in Canto 10 of the Inferno, and now they are crushed low. They are literally made more humble or to be more humiliated in, in uh, the linguistic sense because the word uh, humus in Latin means earth. So they are literally brought closer to the earth. Their faces are brought closer to the earth. They are given a... Um, the idea is that the rock that they stood on in order to look down on other people is now placed on their back to correct the uh, erroneous and vicious uh, um, perspective that they had during life. And in fact, Dante gives something of a definition, not a technical definition, of pride at the end of 10, 121 to 123. Oh, proud Christians! wretched and exhausted, who sick in mind, sick in mind, and not seen aright, 
go confidently in the wrong direction. So apparently, pride is a sickness of the mind that keeps you from seeing correctly. It's a problem with attitude. It's a problem with perspective. And what it does, because you cannot see correctly, is it makes you go in the wrong direction. As if you were in a dark wood. It makes you act wrong. Because you cannot see correctly. And so what I have here is that pride is a sickness of the mind. One fails to perceive oneself correctly, and therefore the world correctly. And part of the idea behind pride, you'll see this in characters like Briarius, Niobe, Arachne, and um, Lucifer, is that these people, rather than seeing themselves as part of the world, see themselves as the world itself. They see themselves as the center of the universe, which is sort of interesting because Lucifer is now, after his fall, literally at the center of the universe, given the geocentric model that Dante uh, would have maintained his mind. So these people were so inflated, that means incorrect, <laughs> about their idea of the world and their place in it, that, well, they need to now fix their perception of the world and of themselves. And they'll do this through art, example and counterexample, vicious and virtuous art, and through the work that they do every day with this terrible weight on their back. And the weights are supposedly different in weight, depending on the amount of pride that a person had their Punishment is individual in the same way that their crimes or their vices were individual. Who knows how proud a person can be? Apparently pretty proud. Alright. The angel who... This is the first piece of art that we see. It is the art of Mary. The angel who reached earth with the decree of that peace, which for many years had been invoked with tears, the peace that opened heaven after long interdict, that angel is Gabriel, the archangel, appeared before us, his gracious action carved with such precision... He did not seem to be a silent image. So this sculpture is so good that it looks as if it is actually speaking. One would have sworn that he was saying Ave, that means hail, Ave Maria, full of grace, plenty of gratis. For in that scene there was the effigy of one who turned the key that un unlocked the highest love. Turned the key to heaven and unlocked heaven. And in her stance there were impressed these words, Ece Ancilla Dei, Behold! The handmaiden of God, very similar to Ecce Homo, which is uh, uh, said uh, uh, by Pontius Pilate when Jesus is on the cross. Behold the man, behold the man, not, not the God. Precisely like a figure stamped in wax. Alright, so these are the examples of the corrective virtue to pride. They are the corrective virtue of humility, and they are carved above the sinners to raise their perspective. This first image is called it is of an event called Mary and the Annunciation. Annunciation means the announcement. She is told in this moment by an angel, Gabriel, you are going to have the Son of God who is actually God himself, which, for most women, would be the sort of thing that would uh, cause a lot of pride. Oh, look, my child is going to be the best child that can possibly exist. It would be like the sort of thing that Thetis thought about Achilles, but she would be wrong if she compared Achilles to, say, Mary's child, at least in Dante's perspective, especially during the Middle Ages. And in any case, I see a nice contrast between her and Niobe. Niobe, of course, had 14 children, bragged about how she had more children than Leto. Leto then sent her children, Apollo and Artemis, to kill Niobe's children. And Niobe, because of her pride, then lost everything because her husband then committed suicide as well, and she turned into a waterfall. Um, in any case, Mary is told by the archangel Gabriel she will be the mother of God. Rather than becoming very proud about this, she accepts this very humbly. And there is a, a good reason for this humility, too, because even though her child is a god, as you know from those statues of Pieta where Mary is holding the dead Jesus, even if your son is God, he will someday what? Die. Right. Sad. So 
You know, no need for too much pride in that case. In any case, second image. There carved in the same marble were the cart and oxen as they drew the sacred ark, which makes men now fear tasks not in their charge. People were shown in front, and all that group divided into seven choirs made two of my senses speak. One sense said no, the other said yes, they do sing. So apparently this art is so good that it not only looks as if they are singing, he can hear them singing the art is representing so well. So on the one hand, he's like, I know I don't hear this. But on the other hand, I think I do hear this. So this art is very, very, very realistic. Um, supposedly based on a, uh, a sort of sculpture that was then contemporary in Italy at the time of Dante, which I frankly don't know that much about. In any case, just so about the incense smoke shown there, my nose and eyes contended too with yes and no. And there the humble psalmist, that's David, he was a singer and king, went before the sacred vessel dancing, lifting up his robe. He was both less and more than a king. What's that mean? All right, King David. This is our Old Testament example. King David was uh, a very talented individual, somebody who could be taken by pride. Uh, similar to Achilles in some ways. Just as Achilles was a prince, King David is a king. Just as Achilles was a, a lyre player, so was King, king David a harp player. Apparently very good. And in fact, the king before him, he would play the harp for, and a couple times while playing the harp, that king tried to kill him. In any case... When he becomes king, he is told to go down to a, an object, a very holy object to the Hebrews of that time, called the Ark of the Covenant. It's basically this object that is defined as the most holy thing you are not allowed to touch. In fact, one man, when it became unsteady, and there is a symbolic way to understand it, this, tried to write it and stand it up, and just for touching it, he was executed. And so, David is commanded at one point as king to go down and dance publicly in front of this Ark. You say, with a bunch of people at a ball? I say, No! N not like at a ball, because A, he's alone, and B, he's naked. And he's dancing in front of everybody, like a madman. And so, you might say, uh, uh, that sounds crazy, and I'd say, yes, I think it really sounds humble, however. Because a king is the sort of person that generally wears royal vestments, things that indicate his position. Well, he's not wearing anything here, he's being very much vulnerable. Two, kings usually act in kingly ways. They do things like hold scepters and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, in this case, he does something that nobody would want to do. Dance naked publicly in front of people. And, well, while he's doing that, his wife, whose name is Macal, watches desperately, scornfully. She thinks, oh, this is no way for a king to act. This is very much denigrating to his own character. And yet, he is showing that even though he is king over men, that there's a king over him, there's a law above his, that even though he is a king, he is still a man. And so there is a king above him. That king is a god or a universal law. And so David shows humility, recognizing his nature, even though his role as a human, uh, his nature being a human nature, even though his role as king, he is still human. So he recognizes that by being humble, which I think is cool. In any case, the third one. And there the noble action of a Roman prince was presented. This will be our Greco-Pope Roman example. He whose worth had urged on Gregory to his great victory. That's sort of interesting. There was a pope named Gregory who supposedly um, raised Trajan from the dead in order to convert him to Christianity so that he could go to heaven. And apparently Dante believed that that was the, an accurate account, a correct account, because Trajan will be in heaven alongside King David. They'll both be in the Eagle of Jupiter amongst the just leaders. In any case, I mean... The emperor Trajan and a poor widow was near his bridle, and she stood, even as one in tears and sadness would. Around him horsemen seemed to press in crowd. Above their heads on golden banners, eagles were represented, moving in the wind. Among that crowd, the miserable woman seemed to be saying, Lord, avenge me! 
For the slaying of my son, my heart is broken. There is more to that quote, but I don't want to belabor the point. In any case, Emperor Trajan, 53 CE to 17 CE. He was a Roman emperor. We'll see him in the Paradiso alongside David. Mary's also up there. She's a little higher up in the Paradiso. However, we'll see her a little after Adam. Well, apparently, this Emperor Trajan, like you would imagine a Roman to be in the first century CE, is on military campaign. And this widow has recently had a son die, and she wants vengeance for his death. She wants some sort of restitution. So she goes up to this Emperor Trajan, and she says, Hey, I don't know if it's on your calendar for today to um, avenge my son's death. It looks like you're going on a campaign. However, you are the king, and I am one of your, uh, I am one of your, I, I shouldn't say servants, but I am, mm, what is the word for your constituents, I suppose I should say. Yeah, I am one of your constituents, and so, since this wrong has been done to me, I need somebody to write it. Emperor Trajan says, okay, I would love to, I need to go on campaign. Now, however, she then says, well, if you go on campaign, military campaign, and on an expedition, and then you die, who is going to avenge my son? And he says, well, my successor will. And she says, well, is it your successor's responsibility to avenge my son, who died under your reign, or is it yours? And supposedly he's humble enough take the time to go uh, take care of business. And uh, even though he is a king, an emperor, leading an army, um, reminds me a little bit of Agamemnon and Aulus, uh, which we know from the events before the Iliad from last year, uh, he takes the time to do his responsibility. Again, he recognizes that his human nature involves that he acts morally towards those around him, not just proudly um, uh, uh, rely on his role to get him out of things that he ought to do. In any case, he's bound by duty, rather than rank to do what is right. Should just write that. Alright. Now, Canto 11, let's meet the proud penitents. I was Italian, son of a great Tuscan. My father was Guglielmo Aldobrandesco. I do not know if you have heard his name. Something interesting that I want you to notice right there. Very different from Farinata, who assumes that people will know who he is, even in hell. This man, who comes from a very famous family, says something very humble to start with, showing that the work of purgatory is working on him. Obviously, he's amongst the proud because he's very what? Proud! But this is not a proud thing to say. I do not know if you have heard his name. There, I used to meet people when I was a new teacher, and I'd be like, I am Mr. Schmidt, or I'd say, I am the Schmidt. And I'd be like, have you heard of me? And most of the time, people would say yes, and I would then puff up my chest and be all proud. But nowadays, I'll like meet a student, and I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm Mr. Schmidt. Uh, and they'll be like, oh, I heard of you, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, oh, that's sort of interesting. And the idea is that I've become more humble. I don't assume everybody knows about me now, just like him. In any case, the ancient blood and splendid deeds of my forefathers made me so presumptuous that without thinking on our common mother, I scorned all men past measure. That means looked down on them, disdained them. And that scorn brought me my death. The Sienese know how, as does each child in the Campagnatico. I am Umberto. My arrogance has not harmed me alone, for it has drawn all of my kin into calamity. He also seems to recognize that his sin, or based on his vice, does not simply have a personal problem, but also has a familiar problem. Uh, that his vice is not simply an individual thing, but is also a communal thing. Alright, and so, his name is Umberto Aldo Brandeschi. And he laments the arrogance that was common in his family. They were powerful Ghibellines who controlled the entire territory in the coastal region of Tuscany. Notice also how humbly he greets Dante, and also that he uh, recognizes that his vice was not only personal, but also had a communal detriment. 
as well. It's almost as if the bad things you do that you think only affect you can, like a drop of water or a drop of poison in clear water, can have much wider-reaching effects than one might expect. In any case, the second person, oh, I cried out, are you not Odorisi, glory of Gubbio, glory of that art they call illumination now in Paris? Brother, he said, the page is painted by the brush of Franco Bolognese, smile more brightly. All the glory now is his. Now that's something very interesting to notice. This person obviously is not proud of his family, but proud of his art, very similar to probably Dante, who will actually admit that, admit that very soon. But a very proud person, the first thing you would imagine them to say about their art compared to others is that it is better than someone else's. What is the first thing he says about someone else? He says the pages painted by the brush of Franco Bolognese, not himself. All of the glory is not his. He admits that there's actually a painter who is better than he is. Obviously, he is less proud, more humble than he once was. Mine but apart. In truth, I would have been less gracious when I lived so great was that desire for eminence which drove my heart for such pride here one pays the penalty and i'd not be here yet had it not been that while i could while i still could sin i turned to him so he repented of that so odorisi da gubbio he was a talented miniaturist that means me miniature figures of things as well as illuminator illuminators are the sorts of people who make those beautiful first letters on chapters in medieval codices as well as draw in all the beautiful figures on the sides. In fact, if I go back just a little bit here, this is an illumination right here. You can see Purgatorio Cante, Canto Decimo, that means Canto 10, of course. All right, let's get back here, making hint. Oh, oh, yeah, very good. All right, in any case, something interesting about Odorisi Dagubia, who is now uh, humble about his work and the fact that other artists are better than he, though he would not have said that during his life, is that he was actually commissioned by Pope Boniface VIII in 1295 to uh, work on making some sort of illumination or miniature for the Vatican at that time. In any case, this is somebody who is proud of his art, or proud of his work, in the same way that Umberto was proud of his family. Alright, third person. When he was living in his greatest glory, this man is described, doesn't actually speak, Said he, then of his own free will, he set aside all shame and took his place upon the Campo of Siena, again another Sienese person, to there to free his friend from suffering in Charles's prison, humbling himself, he trembled in each vein. I say no more, I know I speak obscurely, but soon enough you'll find your neighbor's acts are such that what I say can be explained. This deed delivered him from those confines. Alright, this next individual, another Sienese, just like the former person, Provenzon Salvani was a prominent Ghibelline general. And we'll actually hear about Provenzano Salvani in the Terrace of Envy as well. We'll hear about his aunt, who enviously wanted him to die. He's from Siena, and he helped lead the Sienese forces to a defeat of the Florentine Guelphs at Monteperti in 1260. You say, Monteperti 1260? I know, I know who led that force. The person who led that force was Farinata from Canto 10 in the Inferno. And I say, yes, you are correct. That was the second time that Farinata had defeated the Florentine forces. And the co-victor with him was Provenzano Salvani, who was a Sienese man. And as a Sienese man, hating Florence, Florence was much bigger than Siena at this time. You might say that Siena would be proud if they were thinking that they could be the same sort of place as Florence. Mm, interestingly enough. <coughs> well, after the defeat of Florence, Provenzano Salvani wanted to sack and destroy Florence. But it was the case that Farinata, who was, an, who was originally from Florence, a Florentine individual, saved Florence. So even though he is in hell, he did do something good at some point. 
And interestingly enough, you might think, hmm, it's interesting that Farinata would be brought up so many times here. His Canto 10 is also one of the cantos of pride in the Purgatorio. And uh, what his sin wasn't pride, but rather heresy. And there seems to be some connection between what pride and heresy is. If heresy is believing that your way of seeing the truth is better than that of others, and you are willing to lead them away from it, then perhaps the whole notion behind heresy is that it is a very proud thing to think. Hmm, I wonder. In any case, uh, Provenzano would later have his head severed and shown above the walls of Florence as fulfillment of a prophecy that his high head would rise high above Florence. He probably thought he'd be like sort of a king or at least a prior. Oh yeah, that's something interesting. I mentioned that I long ago that Dante was a prior. He was actually a Podesta. Priors were mayors. Podesta is more like the city council. Difference. In any case, he made it into purgatory. His is <coughs> on again. Bless you. By single, by a sing, single humble act. So he went from defeating one city to literally begging his fellow citizens, because he'd run out of money, for ransom money to win the life of an imprisoned friend. So he, like David in this case, uh, went down from his position of leadership down into a public space and rather than dancing nakedly in this case, begged, which is sort of exposing yourself in a very vulnerable way to the judgments of those around, you know. I don't know if you've ever not had your lunch money and had to go around to your friends and beg for food, but it, you know, it is a very humbling thing to do. In any case, let's look at the carvings of vice. I only really have one slide here. There are a lot of issues. There are a lot of examples of vice. The idea seeming to be that there are more examples in the world and art of vice than there are of virtue, because virtue is, of course, much more difficult than vice. But here, I saw to one side of the path one who had been created nobler than all other beings, falling lightning, light from heaven. And that, of course, is Lucifer. I saw upon the other side Briarius, transfixed by the celestial shaft. He lay ponderous on the ground in the fatal cold. That's so funny. Dante didn't get to see actual Briarius down amongst the giants, but he does get to see a representation in art of Briarius, which is interesting because the representation in art is one that actually he is creating as author in this moment. So if he is ever going to see Briarius, he is going to have to create an image of Briarius himself to see, which is in fact what he does, which I think is funny. In any case, I saw Thimbrius, that's Apollo. I saw Mars, that's Ares. I saw Pallas, that's Athena. Still armed as they surrounded Jove. Their father gazing upon the giant scattered lids. We get several more examples as well. Alright, so what are these examples? Well, just like with the examples of humble acts, we get Old Testament examples, we get New Testament examples, as well as Greco-Roman ones. A couple of uh, the godlike figures, one from the New Testament as well as from the Greco-Roman uh, examples are Lucifer and Briaris. Lucifer, you know, the greatest being ever to be ever have been created, was cast down into hell and is the reason that there is an inferno for Dante. Briarius, you recall, he had 50 heads, 100 arms, and was a creature that supposedly helped Zeus to become unbound at some point uh, through the acts of Thetis, mother of Achilles. Men and giants, we remember Nimrod from down uh, between circles 8 and 9. He's the one who created the Tower of Battle that led to confusion of human languages. Niobe, she's the one who had 14 children, who had all 14 of those children killed by Apollo and Artemis after she bragged that their mother Leto had fewer children than she did. Well, Leto has more now. Arachne, that's what this image is, actually, of this woman half tra uh, transfigured from woman into a uh, 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 spider. Remember, uh, Arachne challenged Athena, Minerva, to a weaving contest, and during that weaving contest, 
Arachne put images of the indiscretions of the gods, like gods trying to abduct and uh, take women by force. And Athena became so offended by this that she boxed the ears of Arachne. Arachne tried to commit suicide, but before she died, um, by hanging, uh, uh, Minerva said, hang forever, and turned her into a spider, and then that's why spiders make webs, supposedly, because of Arachne being a weaver and of trying to hang herself. In any case, we even see full, uh, we see a couple uh, Jewish figures, Saul, Rehoboam, we see even full pe peoples who are proud. The Assyrians, who were the predecessors to the Babylonians, who enslaved the Jewish people at some point, and from whom we get our first ever epic, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And then, of course, we see at the very end, Troy. Fallen Troy and all its pride. Recall Priam and Hecuba, 50 sons, 100 daughters. By the end of things, zero sons, very few daughters. Some of them were enslaved. And actually, a couple of their sons, the traitorous ones, in particular, Helenus, did survive. But, well, not by Dante's time. In any case, Dante's pride. Something I wanted us to focus on for a moment here. It may not be the case that he is just straightforward moralizing us, saying, well, you need to not be proud, because that's sickness of the mind, and will make you go astray in this world, and will actually have adverse effects on you and those around you. Well, perhaps he is also very cleverly, in his greatness of language, showing that he is proud. And he will admit that amongst the terrorists of envy. So, is he being humble in this terrace? Well, if we look at Canto 10... He describes sculptures as being as good as if, but not as good as if, as good, they are so good because they were made by God. He describes sculptures which are actually made by God. In fact, the lines are 94 to, I should say 96. He who never saw any new thing was the creator of this visible dialogue, visibile parlare, new to us because it is not found here. So the sculptures are actually made by God, and who is writing the description of these descriptions? These sculptures, invisible speech, or speech made visible, that would be Dante. That sounds like a very proud thing to say, that you have created art so good that it looks like what God would make. Hmm. Canto 11. He literally rewrites the Lord's Prayer. If you open up uh, Canto 11, you see, Thou who art in heaven, or uh, you'll see that he actually glosses it, too. He gives an interpretation as well as a rewriting of the Lord's Prayer. That is the prayer that was literally said by God as the perfect prayer in the New Testament. So he is improving on that too. So you know, whether he's being humble or not, highly, highly unlikely. In any case, in 1197 to 99, so one Guido has taken from the other the glory of language. That's Guido Cavalcanti, his friend, taking the glory of language from Guido Guinizelli, who we'll see in Canto 26 of the Purgatorio alongside Arno Daniel. But then, and perhaps there is born one who may chase them both out of the nest, it should say there, and that one who may have become better than Guido Cavalcanti as well as Guido Guinizelli would, of course, be uh, potentially Dante. Though, the very next line is, earthly fame is nothing but a breath of wind, but that said, perhaps that wind is carrying the name of Dante at this point. All right, um, I don't need you to write the whips and the bridles bit here. This is something I took from the scholar from Dante Worlds. The idea is this, is this, the whips. It's supposed to keep you from doing things. That's part of the purpose of art here. Bridles, bridles something you put on a horse to keep them from doing things. So you whip somebody to push them towards certain things or to keep them away. Uh, yeah, so that's how the whip works. You whip somebody towards something. So those are the, uh, the pieces of art of humility. You use the bridle to restrain somebody from something, to pull them back from something. And so those are the pieces of art that represent the vice. So the reason we are being shown art here is to show us what to do and what not to do. And Dante apparently believes that with work on one's behavior, that has a transformative effect. 
And so you might imagine, why is there beautiful art in this room as well as gen generally very beautiful chamber music, often by people like Mozart? The idea is that it has a positive transformative effect. And that is also the idea behind public art and why things like museums exist in beautiful garden spaces, that it has some sort of transformative positive effect on you. And you might think about a dirty, ugly place, too. Where would you prefer to be? Somewhere beautiful and well-organized or somewhere gross, dirty, with nothing beautiful to look at? And do you think that has a denigrating effect on you or not? I think that's an interesting question to ask. In any case, uh, the Terrace of Envy, we're not going entirely through this. I'm just going to go through two slides, and they are this. The envious. You see them crowded together. Part of the reason why they're crowded together is that they're on a ledge, and they're blind because they have iron wire closing their eyes shut. Remember, uh, the word envy we have comes from the Latin word invidia, which is a compound word using in and video. Video means see, in means not, like uh, 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 um, I can't even think of it. Inflammable doesn't actually mean flammable. Or it does mean flammable, so it's not a good example. In any case, inconstant would be an example of using that, uh, that in as not. Um, uh, not preposition, but um, prefix. In any case, the envious have iron wire shutting their eyes in the way because they are NVIDIA. They cannot see. And so the idea is that they saw only the good things other people had, but they did not see the journeys of those people or the situations of those people. So in thinking that they saw those people, they actually blinded themselves to the truth of that person and uh, the complexity of their life. And so now, though they looked at others with green envy, envy is described as green, uh, so is jealousy, and they are very similar phenomena, by the way, um, sort of like empathy and, com and uh, compassion or empathy and sympathy in this case. Well, <clears throat> the envious now must crowd together because in the same way that they looked at to others uh, and desired what they wanted, now they must rely on others and realize how little they actually saw. And in fact, we do see one envious person. Here we meet her. Her name is Sapia. She makes fun of her name because, well, her name, she says, I was called Sapia, but I was not wise. The Latin word for wisdom is sapiens. That's where homo sapiens comes from, what we are. Wise humans, or wise, yeah, wise human is what that means. In any case, she says, I was named Sapia, but I was not wise. Why? Well, apparently she, another Sienese person here, rejoiced when her own people were defeated at Coya de Valdesa. Hard for me to say that. Where her own nephew, Provendon Salvani, who we just met amongst the proud penitents, died. And so the essence of envy seems to be hating good for others and loving evil being done to others. Very similar to the German uh, word schadenfreude, which is joy at suffering. Joy at the suffering of someone else. So if you're envious and something good happens to somebody, you frown. If you're envious of somebody and something bad happens to them, you smile. You smile. And so you're, you're twisted out of shape. In any case, that's all I had to say to you today. Recall what we learned about the structure of purgatory. Recall what we learned about the structure of pride itself first. Uh, example of, uh, the, of humility, of the um, corresponding virtue. Second of the actual proud penitence and their punishment itself. And then third of the vice that is to be corrected, and that is the structure that these terraces of purgatory proper take.